Welcome to part two of At The Mermaid. I'm Sarah Lafford, and I've spent the last five months talking to people online about their memories of the Mermaid pub in Birmingham, seen by many as the birthplace of grindcore. At The Mermaid is a capsule production and home of metal project. Home of Metal's projects join the dots between music, social history, visual art and fan cultures to produce a new perspective on heavy metal. One that is celebratory, eschews notions of high and low art and joins audiences and performers together. Home of Metal is devoted to the music that was born in and around Birmingham. Music that turned up the volume, down-tuned guitars and introduced a whole new meaning to the word heavy. This time we'll hear more about the Mermaid's community, including the political culture and DIY ethos. This was all happening against the backdrop of Birmingham in the 1980s, so I asked, what was the city like then? Let's hear from Ben Andrews, Nick Bullen from Napalm Death, Tim Richardson and Steve Charlesworth from Heresy. Bottom just fell out of it and Rover shut in 99. Yeah, it was a bit bleak. Uh, it was very pub-oriented. A lot of it was based around pubs, old pubs that you could afford to put gigs on at. 1980s Birmingham was, like many other cities, it wasn't that exciting, it wasn't that thrilling. It had a sense, purely in its topography, that it not particularly appealing. It's a bit dirty, there were lots of things that had, were lying derelict which of course sat with other areas that were very bi- vibrant. But in general, the sense of it was down at heel, which of course, to some extent, under the, the governments that had been in power in the preceding years, makes sense. So it wasn't uh, a thrilling place to visit, apart from the creativity of the people who lived there. I kind of loved it, really. I, there was a sense of urban decay about Birmingham then, you know. The, the inner ring road was still there, and a like, lot of the slums and the back-to-backs were still down her street, and there was, it, was, it wasn't, definitely wasn't on the up like it is now. The old bull ring was there. I liked it, you know, in our mind, because we were so obsessed with American fans. We thought, this must be exactly like Brooklyn, but a Birmingham version, you know. <laughs> For a very, very short period, we were graffiti artists. And we used to go down the bottom of the old inner ring road and uh, we had that New York subway art book and we'd kind of do our tag and spray our band names on the concrete and then pose with it and think, oh, this is great. This is, this, whoa. you know, this is so cool. <laughs> we had a band called The Dorks and we used to just tag dorks everywhere. But anywhere prominent, it got cleaned up. But I've got a picture on the computer somewhere of me and my mate standing in front of the big dorks graffiti we did. And we were so proud. But we ran out of blue paint. I think it was just the last bit wasn't done. I, I just think we liked the environment. You know, we just liked the sense that we lived in this slightly decaying city that in our minds was just as cool as New York. <laughs> it probably wasn't. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's a good place to live. Uh, weirdly, talking to people later, you know, friends who'd moved around and done this, and it never ever occurred to me that I would leave Birmingham for any reason, you know, for music or work or anything. It's just I live here. It's great, you know. We'll make the best of it. It's it's got what it's got, you know. It's a good place to live, really. I mean, music was my life as well, and there were record shops, and there were bands, and there were rehearsal places, and clubs, and you know. Yeah, what more could you want? 1980s Birmingham, not much different, really, I don't think, to most other cities. 
there's a lot of poor areas, but I'd, I'd been to Stoke-on-Trent a lot, and Stoke-on-Trent was probably one of the worst areas I'd been to. I came to Birmingham a few times, and because obviously I was playing music, playing drums, and there was a music shop when I came on cousin once it was a music shop we used to go into beforehand and they had a drum kit set up downstairs so you could actually play so that, that was fantastic um, we used to go down and used to make a bit of a racket till they kick you out basically but yeah any rehearsal space was was good so that was a bit of rehearsal so that was i mean it's kind of a lot more racially mixed i should imagine than um stoke on trent and stoke on trent was, was pretty much white which was obviously good different cultures Justin Broderick of Napalm Death, Godflesh, Final and many other bands describes his experience of the city as a teenager and travelling to Meriden to meet Nick Bullen and Miles Ratledge of Napalm Death. I just like bet you fucking feel this, these high rises. I lived in a, a flat on top of shops with opposite shops and it was always busy and you could always hear, hear people outside. Super oppressive. And I look at old photos of it now and I'm just like, it looks like a fucking prison. It looks like I lived in a fucking prison, and it was. I often used to joke to people, like the first time I watched the Razorhead, the film, and there's a view where his, his, in his flat, he opens the curtains and it's a brick wall. The view out of our kitchen window in this flat was a brick wall. I had no garden. My whole formative years of growing up, I did not have a garden. From the age of five until 13, I had no grass or no garden. I played next to some garages that had stones and I kicked balls against this garage, you know, and that was it. It was mind numbing. And I recognized it as being the mind numbing. So when we went out to Wales and went to these holidays and stuff, you would, I'd appreciate the environment and it was green and it was had some solitude. So basically when I visited, first visited Nick and, and, and Miles in that environment and I joined Napalm Death, there was such a peace in that environment as well. I remember thinking like it, I really felt something else uh, it would be a beautiful time. Even the bus journeys there that I used to catch there with a, with, you know, my first beaten up guitar that I got for like 15 quid that my mum and my stepdad bought for me. It was just an astonishing period, an astonishing, really fervent period as well. I mean, I, I was writing music all the time, as I do now. I just was just consistently writing music. I would have something all the time. I'd have to put the lid on it. I would just go to these guys and go, I've got this song, this riff, that riff, this riff. And we're trying to abbreviate it, you know. Everything I came up with, I could see more. It's like, there's more to this. I could do more. There's more. There's more. Um, I think I was always overwhelmed with the, the absolute complexity of creation in, in that regard. And it's 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 how infinite it is and how infinite it appears to me. And it's it's even more infinite now. It's ridiculous. It's overwhelmingly infinite. So trying to communicate that and then abbreviate it into your teenage done and then take it to a stage at the Mermaid full of drunk punk rockers was just another level. Do you know what I mean? It was just an incredible, fervent, wild environment. And starting to perform with bands that I was watching only two years ago at the Digger Pacific Hall, you know what I mean? Which was the venue. That's the Pacific Hall was where one saw Crass. The crowd at the Mermaid would vary from gig to gig. Chumbawamba gigs would look different to anti-sect gigs. A Cardiacs gig or a Circle Jerks gig would look different again. The Mermaid was a melting part of underground subcultures. Let's hear from Tim Richardson and Christian Burton, Nick Bullen, Ian Lee... Ming Dynasty, Mark Freeth and Swag. I think in those days, though, things changed quickly. You know, I was early 80s, I was a modern, I was at school, and then I was in a 
band and we were into all kinds of stuff, R&B, Jesus and Mary Chain. Then we were into hardcore and I stayed into hardcore. Then grunge happened. Then like Manchester and dance music happened. So every two or three years, there was some new cataclysmic thing. And it wasn't unusual that I had a mate and I was in a band with and he looked like, like Bobby Gillespie when he was in the Jesus and Mary Chain, always wore black, had long hair, you know, came to our rehearsals. And one week he turned up, he had a skinhead, denim jacket, stupid t-shirt, carrying a skateboard. And we're like, what's happened? Oh, I don't like that stuff anymore. I'm into hardcore now. It's like, oh, people, would they drop out or drop into the scene? And the same kid about five years later was into something completely different. You go, oh, well, look, look at him. There was just so much going on. It was changing so rapidly. I remember another friend who was a DJ. He was, he was well into 60s stuff. He dressed like one of the Rolling Stones. He had long hair and a suit and tie and whatever. And then one day, like, you just never saw him again. I haven't seen him since about 1990s. What happened to Aid? Always into um, house music now. No one ever saw him again. It's just, it's all changed. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that happens now. My kids, they listen to everything and anything, and they don't belong to youth cults, and they don't dress, you know, they still see goths and emos and whatever. But then it was like, I'm that, I'm this. And it just, it'll just change so much. You know, it's an exciting time, really. Exciting time in music. I think opportunities elsewhere were probably limited, so you lived your life through music, you know. So there was this really amazing kind of melting pot of skaters, punks, crusties, metalheads. And there was probably about at least 100 people like in the queue around before we went in. And it was just like, yeah, I was a you know young, very green kid then. And uh, it was just all new and, um, and a, like an amazing experience, really. Just like forging, you know, instant friendships based on what T-shirt you were wearing or, you know, that kind of thing. The audiences at The Mermaid varied, and I think that's the thing is to remember is that Darren Russell promoted a lot of concerts under the banner of, of then of his organisation of floating, floating concerts. The music that he promoted generally was from the kind of anarcho-punk genre and the traveller-free festival wing of hippie music. However, other people promoted concerts as well at the same time there were concerts there by quite a few indie bands the sea urchins played there primal scream played there groups like world domination enterprises the space with three that had a, probably a different audience to the more punk concerts i went to quite a few of both they did attract different audiences as a rule a mixed range of uh, punky types hippie types, alternative types, uh, shall we say, you know. And in those days, it was more obvious than what it is now. I think people nowadays have um, not uh, conformed, but they've evolved a bit, you know, in their outlook and um, appearances. It's evolution, I think, rather than mindset change. Perhaps they're more... A bit better of a disguise these days, you know. Quite weird because I do do think that me and the drummer in the band, we did a lot of photos at the time of the Telford Punks, and you can see there was a definite difference in the way they dressed to the Birmingham Punks because I feel like there was a lot of Birmingham Punks had the spiked hair, had the leather jackets with the studs on and the painted like band stuff on, on the jackets. But the Telford punks were just like so unbelievably different. They'd make they'd make really strange like kind of outfits out of fake fur and like 
it was quite unique. So I think going there, I did feel like you could tell they were Brummie punks compared to Telford punks, which is quite weird. Definitely a Brummie punk. You're definitely a Telford punk, so... <laughs> the strong presence of the crust punk crowd seems undeniable, perfumed by patchouli oil and weed. If I think about the punk concerts, they predominantly attracted people who'd been involved in the anarcho-punk subgenre of punk. So that was characterised by all-black clothing, often fairly scruffy and dirty. Hair would be cut short, but not to the point of a crop, a skinhead crop, or would be long, sometimes matted into dreadlocks. Maybe footwear would predominantly be footwear that wasn't made from animals. So baseball boots and pumps and those kinds of things. And that would predominantly be the look there. But then that was mingled in with the more traditional punk looks of studded leather jackets, boots, Dr. Martin boots, para boots, spiked hair. Different elements of the, the wider punk subculture all going to the similar concerts. And some would turn up more for particular concerts than others and vice versa. A concert by a group like Conflict would attract a much different audience to a concert by a group such as Chumbawamba. There was a lot of the crusty looking, there was a lot of dreadlocks, a lot of torn check shirts, a lot of really crusty um, black leather look trousers, lots of dirt rips. Yeah, I mean, I, I looked a bit like that early on. Obviously, I had hair then. Bit of soapy, dreadlock. Everybody had pretty much similar look. There's this guy that had like a punk hairdo with like a sort of a look like a palm tree haircut. He had a girlfriend and they used to sort of do quite like um, animated dancing. And I think they might even have had a dog on a string as well. It was, you know, the real thing. <laughs> Lots of people in kind of, you know, just like really like crusty clothes like the hair just like loads of people had like green hair pink hair red hair my hair was red at the time so it wasn't like I hadn't seen anyone with coloured hair before I just hadn't seen them all in the same place before <laughs> and yeah just lots of really loud big characters dirty <laughs> filthy ragged basically raggedy kids and, and like you know a lot of dreadlocks and a lot of um but, you know, this time around 85, you're seeing more um, punk kids wearing sort of metal shirts like Celtic Frost and starting to see a appearance of Slayer T-shirts and Celtic Frost and a few things like that. So kind of spin-off of the original punk scene, like a lot of punk people getting into, you know, some of the more punky metal bands, I guess. That was an interesting time because that was the time when it was kind of the, the whole first kind of new wave of metal was kind of exciting and interesting and new. So as a lot of people were picking up on that, going, this is cool, this is fast, you know, it's heavy. And people were into that. That was Nick Bullen, Steve Charlesworth, Ben Andrews, Julie Barton and Stig C. Miller of Amoebics. Steve Watson, who played guitar and bass in Cerebral Fix, told us about his first time at The Mermaid. The Technics van and go to Spark Hill and film all the bands that play The Mermaid. And uh, he told me, he said, uh, you're going to have to go. I saw, this, I saw this band the other night and uh, the singer was barking like a dog. I was like, what? He's like, yeah, he was on the band Napalm. Uh, and so I went with him and I saw Napalm. It was before Shane joined. I think Jimmy was still playing bass. And I can't remember. It was like, it might have been Fear of God with him. But yeah, it was 
it was great. And it was like, uh, if you live in that kind of crappy town like Ruslan or whatever like that, it's kind of almost like CBGB's. You, do, you know, you heard all the bands, you know, tapes of bands who played there or seen videos and stuff. It was good to finally go there. I saw Crusties for the first time. I didn't know what they were. And uh, I was like, well, why do you got dreadlocks then? And I was like, well, why don't they wash? Well, if they're into all that, why are they wearing leather? And it's like, Steve, that's, that's not leather, that's filthy denim. I was like, oh, right, sorry. <laughs> so, yeah, and then I'd see him passed out in the toilets about half nine. <laughs> so, I was like, no way. I, was, I became fascinated with him for a while because I'd never, you know, never seen, they didn't have him recently. First time I went there, I had ripped jeans on, leather jacket, probably had a metallica t-shirt or something like that. I highlighted there, I thought I was scruffy. And I got there, and I like I'd just come from a wedding. I've never seen so many <laughs> uh, ripped clothes. Definitely a venue for the disenfranchised. 100%. Yeah, it was punks, mohawks, skinheads, not the, not the racist type. There was a few kind of metalers there. I mean, if you think of all the napalm and, and like they were all into metal, chain and, uh, and all that. But it was mostly mostly punks down there, definitely. Two kind of crossover kids and stuff, you know, skate kids and that. The scene wasn't fixed and the music, crowd and look altered over time. As the dominance of anarcho-punk was replaced by hardcore, the crowd was made up of more skaters and a different punk scene emerged, as Paul Catton describes. Someone would be turned up with skateboards, they'd kind of stick out a little bit. Kind of watched it evolve from early grindcore into the full-on grinds, into the US style and that. And all of a sudden everyone dropped the kind of ripped black clothes and the next thing they turned up like, pristinely dressed in straight uh, in skate gear i could never quite work that out i still maintained my line of dreads down the back i was like i was trying to keep it real at the time <laughs> it had gone through a bit of a golden era anyway punk was changing the whole lot of the more sort of american scene was which i love now but at the time i didn't so much the place was becoming sort of full of skateboards and bandanas for a little while which is which is looking back on it was brilliant but at the time, I just I, I kind of preferred it when it was like the kind of more of an anarchist punk or grind, you know, grind uh, vibe. And that's kind of when I stopped going out. And also, it became it started becoming a little bit expensive to travel. This changing scene seems to mark a shift in the dominance of politics, with those attending in the early years more likely to see anarchist literature and hunt sab meetings at the Mermaid. Britain in the 1980s was dominated by the miners' strikes. The Conservative Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, who had a neoliberal agenda to shrink the state, crush the unions and privatise services, led the country from 1979 to 1990. This was the starting point of late capitalism, where all aspects of public life are commodified. This was also the peak of the nuclear threat during the Cold War. In short, there was a lot to be angry about and a lot to rally against. Anti-capitalists and anarchists... Animal rights activists and anti-nuclear activists found a sanctuary at the Mermaid and people described the political activity at the venue. Jen, who did, used to do patches, used to do political patches. And so she always had a store there, pretty much every gig that I went to, she was always there. And there was always stores outside, so a lot of animal rights stuff. Hunt Sabin was massive at the time. We used to go hunt Sabin as well. And we see people from the Malvern Hunt Sabs, West Midlands Hunt Sabs, Class War as well. We used to, used to do a Class War store there. All manner of stuff, really. It was just it was uh, those people really that I remember. The people on the stores and like the hunt subs that we used to we used to knock around with as well. It sort of went very very animal rights. There's the sort of start. My sort of take on it anyway was, was it was very sort of animal rights. Practically everybody was vegetarian. Um, certainly the ones that went to the gigs I went to. So we all did a lot of hunt subbing, you know, and a lot of anti vivisection marches and stuff like that. 
but then we, we kind of, I suppose, because of places like the Mermaid and because of the marches that we went on, you know, it was a constant discussion about the, the politics of it and can we do something different? Can we do something better? You know, it's just like evolving constantly. And I suppose, you know, places like the Mermaid were like universities. People would go along and, and you know, many a time I just chatted all the way through, all the night, you know, all the way through the night and didn't see the bands. Lots of pamphlets, lots of leaflets, lots of fanzines and stuff like that. And, and that kind of progressed our sort of like political analysis and, and the way that we saw things. Politics evolved and the, the way that we kind of put our politics across has evolved as well. Faced with the sort of onslaught of Thatcherism, you know, we, we, we had to choose different ways to, to fight back. I think the sort of politicisation of, of people at the Mermaid, that's like a real revolution where, you know, you go off in, and you, you, you find a job and, you know, the way that you live your life, the way that you conduct your relationships, you know, the way you bring your children up and stuff like that is sort of all affected by those conversations that you had at the Mermaid and places like it. And that's a real revolution. That's a real sort of social revolution. I think it's really important. It's not just building barricades on the street and throwing petrol bombs. It's kind of like a cultural and social revolution as well, and I think that's really important. There were activists there as well who were sort of um, advocating direct action and telling people locally, within a couple of mile radius of the Mermaid, what butchers were around, what big national companies, Barclays were around and things like that, to tell them to target if they were of that nature. So people did used to, after going Saturday nights, there would be lots of windows smashed in and things that these people, you know, activists had told people about what was around locally. There was barely any judge and jury, you know, but but a lot of people say that. But yeah, there was. There was the whole, the whole vegetarianism thing, the militant animal liberation thing, and so on. And we were all a part of that culture as well, you know. You know, I, I mean, really, you know, hats off to bands like Crass. Really, because without Crass, we wouldn't have done any of this anyway. None of us would have been there. I, I, I say how lucky I am for meeting Nick Bullen and Miles uh, and, you know, and so on, but how lucky we all were to have been exposed to Crass and Crass telling us, you can fucking do this. You can do this. It doesn't have to be run by fucking corporations. It doesn't have to be run by, you know, the real, real punk rock. Well, not punk rock with... Uh, CBS behind it, but punk rock with, you know what I mean? Real, real DIY stuff, the real, the real fucking thing, really. Incredible. There was a lot of political activity, activism, a lot of the zines that people were selling were very political and certainly made me aware of situations that I hadn't been aware of before, like apartheid. In South Africa, I didn't know anything about it, you know, we only had three channels. TV channels in the 80s and uh, yeah you just didn't really hear of stuff that was happening and I guess because the government at the time in the UK you know supported apartheid so yeah I didn't really hear about it. It was from going to the Mermaid that I met people who I started going hunt stabbing with, a lot of people who were very very into animal rights almost and then there was like the opposite end of the spectrum who was like what we called the towny punks who would like drink in Pigeon Park during the day. And they were like more of like the peacock punks, the postcard punks who were like, you know, really elaborate big Mohicans and dressed more in that like 70s punk style. And they were like really anti-politics. And so there used to be quite a lot of generally lighthearted, but sometimes not like a bit of banter between, you know, like people who were really political and, and those that weren't. And you know, a bit of sneering from both sides, really, I think. But, yeah, just I think that's that kind of teenage 
tribalism thing, isn't it? You just want to find your tribe and everybody else is outside. You know, I remember people being eating sausage and chips outside at the bus stop after a gig and having others shouting at them for eating meat. And sometimes I've seen people having their sausage or their burger or something slapped out of their hands, fights over that, you know, ridiculousness. I was vegetarian at the time, but I remember going hunt sabbing and making the, <laughs> the fatal mistake of bringing a cheese sandwich with me in the <laughs> and just having like a complete, like totally character assassination by the vegan police for daring to bring a cheese sandwich on to a hunt sab. I was like, well, at least I'm here on a Saturday morning. <laughs> you know? Yeah, learned the lesson pretty quickly and just stuck to the Tartex sandwiches from then. <laughs> Some of the guys that used to go to the bar, they were in, they were in the hunt sap as well, which was the hunt saboteurs. They used to go out to hunt meetings that disrupted the, the uh, chase and everything. But some of them were really heavily into it. And I think there was one band, I think it might have been anti-system. And they, um, some of them got put away for uh, attacking um, laboratories and things. At the time, I was sort of still at school in the early days. Um, so I didn't really get the, the full kind of effects of, like... Thatcherism at that state at that time, but certainly with my parents and with the kind of strikes and knowing that the country was struggling through that, it certainly did kind of make you aware of why so many bands were protesting, you know, in their music about what was the state of. I mean, I think the the one of the biggest punk bands at the time was Conflict. Certainly, bands like Antisect and um, Amoebics and uh, Conflict and all, like those kind of more, I guess serious, crusty type bands did like make me think a lot as well about politics and various movements within political movements like um, you know animal liberation and vegetarianism and you know just social injustice. Because you'd get to read about a lot of that, those issues in the fanzines as well. I met some of their friends who were involved in uh, Women Oppose the Nuclear Threat Group, which was in Birmingham. And then there was the Peace Centre that was in town. And I had a, who was their friend, used to work there. So then I just started coming to Birmingham hanging out with them and going on like demos and went to green and with them and they did a uh, coach trip they get a coach to like holy lock and we did a blockade in holy lock and like you know got dragged off by the police and squatted army chillwell base it was all like kind of anti-nuclear stuff so that I was involved in and used to go to green and quite a lot with them either just go for the day <laughs> or end up staying there coming back the next morning that was I suppose it was like kind of me, like meeting people that were into the things that I was just sitting here in like Telford, like listening to, and it was all, all becoming real. So it was good. It was all, all very exciting and, you know, going on demos and meeting like-minded people. I mean, you didn't talk about politics. I mean, my politics has always been, it's just a weird dichotomy because I run my own business now, so I'm a capitalist. But I, I was a communist. I would, I, I wasn't really into anarchy, but absolute extreme left wing. I've always been a vegetarian since I was 11. So like hunt saboteurs, absolutely right. Everyone was behind that. There were gigs for the hunt sabs and everyone's like, yeah, I'd do that. The only reason I didn't do hunt sabbing myself was I thought I would get so upset that I would probably, I'd just get 
locked up for assaulting some fox hunter. But yeah, it was like an unspoken thing. And it was all, everyone's pretty left wing. I mean, I think some of the violent element, right wing skinheads existed, but yeah, I never saw it. That was an undercurrent and there was a the fascist thing. And a few of my mates a bit later into the whole Antifa thing. That, that was probably by the 90s, really. Everyone at the moment hated Thatcher. Everyone supported the Hunt Saboteurs. Everyone was anarchy, whatever. You know, everyone was, was that. If anyone come in and said, you know, I, I think the Tories have got a good, you know, you just wouldn't have said it. It just wouldn't have. It, it wasn't spoken. No one sat there discussing you know, Das Kapital or anything or situationism, but everyone was left-wing. Yeah, it just, it just went without saying, really. While some described the mermaid as a site for political education, others saw the political edge of the scene as secondary to the energy and fun of the gigs. Here's Nick Bullen, Mark Freeth of Ausgang, Steve Charlesworth and Minda Nasty. I wouldn't say it was particularly political at the mermaid. It was just that you're just there to hear the bands. And often some of the more political bands were a bit, a bit preachy. I never really liked the subhumans because they were, it was just too, I guess it wasn't nuanced enough, their politics. There was a conflict who were very political, but they kept on getting shut down because either some skinheads would turn up and try to shut the gig down or the police would turn up. So I don't think it was necessarily overtly political. It was clearly there in the... Uh, lyrics and the artwork it was more the artwork as well that you could open up all the um crass lps and uh singles and see all the feminist artwork on it it was really good but i don't think that was politically uh, that was particularly there the mermaid was a politicized space to some extent the vast majority of the people who were going there say for the the anarcho-punk the thrash the hardcore concerts would have been certainly on the left in terms of politics probably to the far left to towards anarchism and that did seep into and influence and inform much of what went on there benefits happened bands expressed politicized sentiments on stage people in the audience would hand out flyers or sell magazines or other music that spread those sorts of messages and so i think it was all enmeshed within in part because a lot of those genres that develop hardcore and thrash had been informed by anarcho-punk that many of the people involved in them had come through anarcho-punk and that was reflected in the lyrics they were writing for those groups and for instance people would arrange to meet there to go hunt saboteuring at the weekend and things like that hunt saboteurs from different parts of the midlands would meet there at concerts and discuss what they were doing it was fairly politicised. One also must remember, though, that a, perhaps a function of a concert is not necessarily to focus on politics. It may be to focus on the in, enjoyment and, and celebration as well as as ideas. So I think people, some people just like to come and hear some music that made them feel good as well and be in a space where they felt like almost all the people there were the kind of people that they are, they were. The whole punk stroke, metal stroke, goth 
post-punk scene was very, very righteous. It was very left-wing orientated anyway. I think the anarchy thing is is probably an obvious one because, you know, the Pistols having, you know, anarchy in the UK and a whole bunch of punks walking around with, you know, the anarchy symbol on their leather jackets. Uh, that wasn't a side that interested me really any because I almost felt that sometimes it was preaching to the converted. That's how I felt anyway. Everybody was very much on the left, totally anti-Thatcher. I mean, we didn't sit around talking politics because it was just, we, we were into that, but we, we were just wanting to see the bands more than anything. So it's, it's more, it wasn't all as serious as that. It was going to enjoy a gig and to let loose a bit. That was always there because all the bands were singing about, about political issues and that. But yeah, at the gig, it was more just to enjoy yourself, you know, just to let loose a bit. And... I don't think I saw it as like a political scene. It was like, trying to think about it now, it was more of a place where like-minded people just went and felt comfy with each other. You you kind of knew that like, well, or you presumed that most of the people that were there would be anarchist, punky, lefty, into the same things as you, really. I think there probably was a lot of politics going on in there, but... um. If I thought about it, I wouldn't go. It was a place where everybody politically met. I think it was just a place where people went to that were of a similar mindset. Just the nature of the place attracted like-minded people. A vital element to both the music and politics of the mermaid was the DIY culture and ethics. To do it yourself is to live and breathe the anarchist slogan, no gods, no masters. You get a real sense of people embodying their political views, moving beyond theory and debate to a politics in action. One political action was the spreading of information, sharing ideas and fostering community through creating and distributing fanzines, frequent letter writing, bootlegging gigs and swapping cassettes. A great place where a lot of fanzines were sold, where a lot of different publications came out, different things, you know. Like I say, a lot going on, a lot going on between bands selling their own fanzines or people selling their own records or their own CDs or whatever, yeah? This is kind of early days of CDs as well, so, yeah. <laughs> we used to organise gigs where, you know, for those days someone would write a letter to you and you'd write a letter back. You'd go down the pay box at the end of the road and use the phone and organise a gig that way or they'd ring you up or you'd ring the number they'd sent you on a letter and you'd go, OK, we'll be there in a couple of weeks' time or whatever, you know? <laughs> So if you didn't show up, people would be really pissed off because like there wasn't any way of you going, oh, we cancelled this one now, so you'd be on the poster and like, people would hate you, so you'd always have to show up for everything. Most of the times you managed to do that because you'd organise these things weeks in advance so that whoever put, put the gig on, they would be like making their own flyers, posters and sticking them up everywhere and telling everyone about it and writing in the little fanzines about it so everyone got to hear about it. Yeah, it's, it's crazy how those things went down. You think, well, pre-internet, how did that happen and how did it even work? But it did work. It, did, it definitely worked. There weren't many fuck-ups like that. I can't remember going to many places where the gig was cancelled. You didn't know about it before because there's usually a number you could call to find out what was going on. So that would usually happen. But, you know, if you said you were going to play, you turned up and you played. That was probably what made it strong, people's faith in each other, that they could make it happen and that you'd have to trust the word if someone said they're going to we put a gig on, yeah, we can pay you petrol or whatever. I mean, <laughs> I was looking at the prices of these. The biggest price I can see on any of these for an all-day is like two quid. Most of them are 150. Uh, 150, 150, that's some, that's some heresy, devious, deviated instinct, scum drivers, napalm death, potential threat, instigators and amoebics for 150. That's quite a lot of bands for a quid 50. 
<laughs> so I don't know how we even managed to cover petrol, to be honest with you, but we did most of the time. Those uh, flyers of us playing the mermaid, we made those. You know, I went to art college, as did a lot of punk rockers and et cetera, et cetera. And so I've got an artistic eye. I'm still involved in the visual side of, of the band, but equally my band members are. And I think a lot of musicians are. We, we, you know, we're kind of creative people, aren't we? And and if we, if, we're, if we can't put an image together, we'll ask somebody else to do it, but we'll have the last say because we know what is good for our band. But yeah, we made our, our own flyers, our own posters. We hit the streets and fly posted you know ran away from the cops got caught by the cops you know all of this it it was part of the deal and flyers were so important fanzines were absolutely crucial just before that you mentioned cassettes that was you know the only of before cds that was the only available way of getting our music to fans and also to potential record companies and in fact when i this was about uh, just over a year ago i came across a, a cache of amazing cassettes from my old days i had no way of playing them a fan got in touch and said send them to me and i can digitize them for you which he did sent, sent them back and i was completely knocked out how great they were i mean i know i would say that fanzines were crucial we uh, had people selling their fanzines at all our shows, sending us their fanzines, into interviewing us for their, their fanzines, and we also produced our own fanzine. When we were Kabuki, we produced only one issue of Between Thy Hips. That only lasted one issue because almost next day, Kabuki became our gang, but we wanted to continue this fanzine thing. So uh, Between Thy Hips became Stab the Sun. And there were eight issues of Stab the Sun. And all it was was just us having a laugh, reviewing things that we went to, encouraging contributions from fans and, and industry types alike. We had a very, very early champion in those days uh, called Mick Mercer. He's still on the scene now. He's still a journalist. He's still doing radio shows. I think the DIY culture was part of punk from a very early period. Certainly came into its own with genres anarcho-punk, where fanzines were integral to spreading the ideas and the messages. And so for a lot of people, it was easier to make a magazine than to make a musical group simply in terms of availability of resources, whether it's equipment or money. Lots of fanzines were a way for people to to be a, a little part of something where they felt like they were making a contribution beyond being themselves. That carried on throughout that period. People were always selling fanzines. People were discussing it. People were swapping fanzines with other people. People were getting people's addresses to be able to write to them. And the same was happening with tapes of the music, which again had been happening for a good few years prior to that. But because that era of hardcore and thrash really embraced music from around the world in a much deeper way it meant that tape trading became even more integral to spreading the music the ideas if people wanted to hear music from brazil or japan or finland in a way perhaps that hadn't been as prominent say five years earlier i made my first fanzine in 1980 i was just coming up to be 12 years old so i was still 11 but 12 basically and then I made fanzines sporadically through to 1984, stopped for a short while, and I made a couple 
1986, and that was it really then. I think I'd sort of refocused my attention as we got into the, the early 80s. I'd sort of refocused it more on making music and writing. That's the shift for me away from the fanzines. But with the fanzines themselves, from the beginning, there was a strong kind of focus on DIY, really. The idea of doing it yourself and making it happen and promoting local examples of people doing it for themselves in the sense of feeling like this is what everyone's doing. We're doing it and it's great to to promote it and to, to say, hey, look how good this is, which I did like about a lot of the fanzines of that era, the way that they would take time to look at what was on their doorstep rather than just feature the biggest groups that they liked. You know, some people went out of the way and expressly said, I, I'm not focusing all of these bands, X, Y and Z, because I want to focus these on these smaller bands who are spreading these ideas. I think that came through a little bit in my fanzines. As I got to the point where, as I was doing some of the later ones, I didn't even want to write about the bands. I wanted just the bands to write things so that they had their say and the, the fanzine itself was a, a conduit and a vehicle for that. So rather than me saying, when did you form and have you got a new tape ready? I would say, do you want to write an article? And then that would become the content. But yeah, I definitely sort of gradually moved away from writing into writing lyrics and, and writing music. I used to write to Mickey Harris and I used to write to Steve Charlesworth from uh, Heresy, uh, who I'm still friends with to, like, to this day. I think at one point I just sent him a load of money. I think I sent him like five, about eight, eight pounds or something, which is quite a lot in like 1988. Uh, and I said, oh, whatever you've got, like EP or demos or anything like that, if you can send me something, that would be great. And he sent me, I think, a Heresy Thanks EP the Never Healed Flexi, uh, a few other bits and pieces. And yeah, I've still got all of that to this day, talking to people and communicating with people. When I kind of started getting into that and writing, that's when it kind of all hit home to me. Actually, there's no, there's, there isn't really a hierarchy at all. You know, it's just everybody's on the same level and a lot of the bands are actually punters as well. It was really word of mouth, especially for gigs like in as far as Birmingham, because I mean, you, 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 fanzines would put gig lists in and stuff like that. So a lot of fanzines that I'd get looks if there's any shows coming up. I wrote to a few people and they'd tell me if there's any gigs on or anything. It was just word of mouth, but it spread pretty, pretty well. When we we're in Staffordshire, before we got to go with Kelv and did Heresy, me and my cousin and my friend gone. We, we did fanzines, three or four different fanzines. Basically, we're just sitting at typewriter, getting loads of cuttings. But, but I mean, that was everything we did. It was it was a, the band, but then it was doing these fanzines. Probably not very PC, really, but we'd go to, like, bookshops, even anarchist bookshops, and we had no money, so we couldn't afford to buy anything. So we'd actually steal books to try to get cuttings out to put in the fanzines. But, you know, you, you, can't, buy, you can't buy it, so how are you going to get the stuff? Yeah, we'd do that. My dad was great with that as well, because he, he used to work in sales at this, this mill in Roaster in uh, Staffordshire. And he'd let us go in there and photocopy all these fanzines. So we'd he'd say he was working an art. So we'd come in and we'd photocopy all this stuff, all, all these fanzines. I mean, they're only limited runs. So it was like 50, 50 copies tops. I mean, but it still took a while to, to do it. 
even one time to to get the paper because we had no money for paper. We actually broke into JCB office. Well, obviously we wore black anyway, but we had like balaclavas and stuff. It was like a top mission. All we were doing was stealing paper and pens <laughs> from the office. But it was just merely just to, to be able to print these fanzines. It was not to knit. It wasn't really to steal anything. It was just to get so we could do this. That was it. So we just basically come out with paper reams of paper and, and pens and anything to be able to create these fanzines. So, yeah, that was just life. It was did anything we did. So you, you do it by any means, you know what I mean? I think by that time, there's an underground network across the UK that established itself in the punk community. Of A lot of bands would travel to the Mermaid from other parts of the UK and they bring people with them and they tell people. And there was probably sort of a loose network of venues across the UK that were put in the so tours would be quite easily organised. People like Extreme Noise, Terror and Napalm Death and Doom and Hennessy. And they'd get 12, 15 gigs together across the UK. And they'd be sleeping on people's floors. A lot of them wouldn't have vans. They might hire a van. Or they get lifts off people and sleep in cars and sleep in railway stations, sleep on people's floors. So it was just like a DIY thing, really, where, you know, people would find ways to, you know, if they couldn't if they couldn't get home, they'd find somewhere to sleep and go on the next day, kind of thing. The people that I met all had a big influence on, on me as a young punk. And I'd already kind of shaped my views from, like, listening to Crass and Conflict and that. But then seeing it in action that whole kind of tape trading. I'd go to a great gig and then a week later I'd be buying the the cassette live recording because Daz always used to do his cassettes. It was just the best days. The best days. Nothing beat those days because it was so I was young and I was and it was also it was always just exciting, you know? And also bands weren't like bands, you know, now you see bands on stage and there's like an the bands used to play at the Mermaid and then they like they just like finish and then step off and then they'd be in the crowd watching the next band. There was none of this, no, there was no dressing rooms or anything like that. <laughs> Honestly, literally, it was hard to know who was in the band and who wasn't, you know. Because let's face it, half of the bands couldn't even play anyway, or they, or you know, the drummer could play because he had a drum kit, uh, but like the bass player might be playing like one note <laughs> or something like that, and everyone would, and you'd still be like, ah, oh, fucking love them. <laughs> there's no emails everyone used to write to each other this was like a massive it wasn't just a mermaid yeah this was like a massive community of letter writing soaping your stamps packing your envelope full of flyers for whatever i remember i used to get home from work and then i know i'd have like seven or eight letters a day it takes a lot to keep up with but yeah people buying fanzines and you know just people corresponding it was great it was just a, a network a network of friends er- as her- heresy summed it all up in a song it's great and maybe the whole kind of email and business and all that's taken all of that. It's made it easier, of course it has, but it's taken taken a lot out of it, you know. Someone would go to another gig and they'd pick up another flyer or, you know, you'd buy a fanzine. You'd write to people. <laughs> yeah, I used to write to people. It was mental. And they'd say, oh, so-and-so are playing or, you know, this band are playing or so-and-so are touring. And, you, you, you know, you'd phone them up or write to them. Or, you know, it was, it was like that. It was a big network. It was, it was mental, really. Anyone could organise the show there. This was the crazy thing. Anyone could promote a show there. We would all promote shows there. I mean, it, literally, I don't even know how. I can't even remember how. My day of leaving school was celebrated by me organising a, a six-band festival. I don't know how the fuck I pulled it off. My, my bludgeoning singular obsession, clearly, uh, I had an ability to talk as well, which is, um, you know, it, it, yeah, surprising. But I just only remember the one main guy. He was quite a big, surly guy with a big moustache. Not very communicative, but definitely quite clearly willing to have a 14-year-old say, I want to put a gig on here next week and go, that's fine. 
carry on. And you just bring the bands in, get some random person to bring a PA, and they would just make money from the bar. You had a gig like that. I mean, it was just incredible. You couldn't even believe these things happened, you know. It was just, I mean, obviously, it was so raw then as well. This was the magic of, of this, you know. This was literally kids doing it for themselves. This was the real DIY. This was the real punk rock. This was no fucking promoters. You know, like these days, you can barely fucking do a gig without the some other fucking corporate trying to get on it. How do people have time to be in several bands, tour, promote shows, make fanzines? Many talked about the importance of the doll. Signing on gave people a small amount of money and a hell of a lot of freedom. American anarchist and author of the book Bullshit Jobs, David Graeber, asked, why are there no amazing new bands in England anymore? Graeber said in a PBS article, ever since the 60s it used to be every five, ten years we'd see an incredible band. What happened? Well, they got rid of the doll. Actually, in Cockney rhyming slang, the word for doll is rock and roll, as in, oh yeah, he's on the rock and roll. He goes on to say, all rock bands started on public relief. If you give money to working class kids, a significant number of them will form bands, and a few of those bands will be amazing, and it will benefit the country a thousand times more than all of those kids would have done had they been lifting boxes or whatever they're making them do now as welfare conditionality. Here's Steve Charlesworth, who played drums in Heresy. I was kind of looking away, because where I lived, it was a little village, and I had my drum kit set up in my bedroom. Obviously, I was on the dolls, didn't need to go to work. So when my mum and dad went to work, I could I just played the drums, basically. I just sat on the kit, just played, played and played, just because I wanted to get to a level where I, I was quite confident to play it. You know, you, you, you're into this and you want to be the best you can. That was all right for me, because... Yeah, I had all that time. My, my, my dad would come back at dinner time and he'd be, what have you been doing? Steve Watson and Julie Barton also felt the freedom of the doll. 100%, because nowadays, I mean, I, I know people are unemployed and, it, and it, you, there'd be no chance. You can't go off and talk for three weeks and get someone else to sign on for you, which people did. Because back then, you go and sign on and somebody wouldn't even make eye contact. they go, have you done any work, paid or unpaid in the last two weeks? And you go, no, we can sign here. See in two weeks, and that'd be it. So people would get their mates to go sign on while I were on tour and stuff like that. You couldn't do it now. I mean, it's the same with uh, when I was in Iron Monkey. We were on the goal apart from Johnny, and there's no way we'd been able to rehearse like we did if we were all working. It had just been at weekends, and it takes forever. You know, you do need to do it daily, and you know, if you want to, if you want to, you want to get to a good standard anyway. A few people, students, sort of mixture of doll and students, really, and then lots of people dropping out of university and going on the doll because that was a more attractive option only really knew very very small amount of people who actually had jobs if they did it was like you know working in a bar or something like that yeah I definitely think like when I look at my friends kids who are sort of you know teenagers or late teens early 20s now and the how few opportunities there are for them to kind of just like leave home and grow and kind of find out who they are away from their parents you know it's just because we have the luxury of you know the dull housing benefit that kids don't have anymore so the only option to leave home is basically to go to university but then you're saddled with lifelong debt and so yeah it just it feels like I think I'm 17 when I left home and a lot of my friends now have got kids who are in their 20s who still haven't left home and I remember at the time thinking 17 was just like 
completely um you know normal age to leave home a lot of my friends of a similar age weren't living at home either but now I'm like oh my god 17 so young what was the doing <laughs> apart from getting drunk most of the time yeah <laughs> signing on drinking cider yeah Here's Dixie Miller of Amoebix and Ben Andrews. From about 1980 to 84, 85, we were living in squats. We were living in squats around Bristol, in, in St. Paul's or around the St. Paul's area, which is just after the riots here. So like that was a pretty fucking rough area to live, but it was also really free as well. No one could tell you what to do, but anything could happen to you as well. You know, that there was no law. The police wouldn't come into the area because it was that sensitive still. So um, most of the places we lived were squats. We had very little equipment and the little things we did have, we'd just kind of like borrow off other people to play. We rehearse where we could, either in, either in a squat or we'd go down to a, get a little bit of rehearsal space and play. Being, being on the dole back then, for us, we'd, we'd be, we're all no fixed abode. So what you'd do then is you'd just go down to the dole office, sign on, literally signing on, and they'd give you a check over the counter. But the money then was a lot more than it works out now, you know, inflation and everything. So you were quite... Not well off, but you were all right, you know. You keep yourself going for a couple of weeks. So once every week or two weeks, you go down there and sign on. They give you a piece of paper, a gyro check, and you go to the post office and cash it. And then you would disappear and come back in another two weeks. No one hassled you, so you could do what you wanted in that time, you know. If you could keep yourself fed and everything else, you could kind of keep going. Boredom brings a lot of creativity out of it, really. You know, a long-term boredom, nothing to do and, and no sense of purpose. You're going to try and make... You want some kind of purpose, you know, and that's kind of what drove a lot of people to do that, I think. Yeah, I think that was definitely part of it. Yeah, dull. Yeah, it's a good source of inspiration. <laughs> it didn't give you a lot of money for things like, you know, hiring a studio. You just have to put your money in together if you wanted to, like, have a day in the studio and record something. But I think the first thing we recorded cost 80 quid, and that was, oh, that was all putting our money together to get 80 quid in a, a day in a four track. No, a day in an eight track and just bang something down and just put it out. No post-production, nothing. Just turn up, play something, record it, and put it out, you know? There's something about that that's cool because you have to commit to what you did then. You commit to the first recording you do. You can't go in and do another take, do it again and again. You go in and you play pretty much live, maybe do an overdub guitar. That's it. A couple of weeks later, it's out as a record. Bash. Yeah, so that kind of made people less self-conscious, I think. You're just putting something out, you're not overanalyzing it and sitting there listening to the mixes again and again like I do now and sit there oh my god oh, that's slightly out or that doesn't sound right or whatever you didn't really have time for that you just went in there put something down and it came out and that was all there was to it really mm-hmm. so you got that kind of immediacy with it I guess which makes for more exciting music because you're just in there putting down your first idea you know so it was a combination of squatting and say for instance a lot of squats turned into Refuges? Women's Refuge didn't necessarily come out of a council. They came out of the squatting movement. And that whole animal rights thing, hunt saboteuring thing was big. You know, actually going out there to disrupt disrupt hunts with um, bags of aniseed. And uh, the whole vegetarianism, Green and Common was still quite a big thing in the, uh, the women's peace movement. Uh, C&D, yeah, and then it all sort of just petered out in the 90s. For most people, including Justin Broderick, the most important thing of all was getting to the mermaid. Just that basic bit of money, which would enable you to be able to catch the buses to the mermaid, maybe have a bargee from one of the Indian restaurants over the road as your tea. You'd be starving most of the time. 
maybe a couple of pints of scrumpy that you'd probably end up sharing and the nubs off the floor to smoke. You'd get by on the basics, the absolute basic minimum. The irony is, even once some of this music became sort of successful, quote unquote, even with Godflesh, I think, we were still on the fucking doll, even after Street Cleaner came out, I think. Because the advances were just about pay for a recording and you weren't really selling any records and so on and so on and so on. You just, you'd make gigs, big repentance. Uh, so you were just getting by. And I mean, it didn't even matter then. You know, Godflesh had just started and I, I went through a whole load of personal stuff and ended up in a squat and we were still playing gigs and I was barely getting by. You know what I mean? I could barely eat, barely buy a pint or whatever. You could share a fucking gram of hash between about eight of you. But we had that little bit of money, just enough to do what I was saying. The most important thing was being able to get to the mermaid. Didn't matter. Once you got there, you'll get food somehow. You'll smoke something somehow and you'll drink something somehow. But the most important thing was to get there, be a part of this community where you finally feel like you're with other outsiders and common outsiders which you, you know, which you was, you feel like you had something in common with these people. And some, I actually felt somewhat safe as well and could be somewhat looked after, weren't just left on your own. There's people who would watch you back and you had this fucking music central to it. And I had this bludgeoning fucking need to do this. I had to do this. And if I didn't eat, sleep, drink, any of that shit, it didn't matter as long as I could express this shit on a stage for free. Money never came into this shit. If somebody actually said there's a free pint between the three of you, you would have been like high-fiving each other if, if that cultural thing would have existed then. We would have been like, holy shit, we've been given a pint. Next time we'll focus on the bands that played at The Mermaid, the most memorable gigs, and how The Mermaid was vital to one of the most influential bands to ever come out of Birmingham, Napalm Death. At The Mermaid is a capsule production created with funding from Historic England. Music kindly provided by Blue Roof and archive clips thanks to Uncouth Youth and Rolling Rock videos on YouTube. Please look out for the publication too and thank you to all the contributors. Alice Rosenthal produced this series. Find out more about Home of Metal at homeofmetal.com.